usually let the music go on for that long, but that is just so, so beautiful. It's composed by Thomas Louis de Victoria, and you'll find it available for free at the museopen.com website. Anyway, on with the show, and... Welcome to History Zine, show number 15. I've been away a long time, I apologise profusely for that. It's been a busy time, an interesting time. I've been up to all sorts of things, amongst them getting married. I doubt any of you be particularly interested, but just in case you are, I have some pictures of the wedding at carryandjim.co.uk. So that's my good news. My bad news is that I'm just about to be made redundant. I can't promise this will mean more History Zine episodes, because I'm kind of hoping that maybe I'll get another job. But anyway, enough of that stuff. On with the history. I want to do a quick news flash for the Twitterers amongst you. It seems Samuel Pepys has taken to this new Twitter thing. You'll be able to find him on Twitter under the name Samuel Pepys. Samuel Pepys all run together as one word. Of course, you don't get the full experience. It's only 140 characters at a time. But even that is quite fun. You'll find Samuel Pepys is very lively and very interesting. He was definitely a man who really engaged with life. And these little tweets really do give a delightful little flavour of the man and of the 17th century. Anyways, on with the show, and here is a review. The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher. The year is 1860. Britain is riding the wave of the Industrial Revolution and enjoying the benefits of empire. The emergent middle classes are wrapping themselves in swathes of morality and good manners. In a village called Road, there is a fine upstanding member of the Victorian middle classes, known as Samuel Kent, inhabiting a large three-storey Georgian house, with his wife, five children and servants. It all seems very respectable, but when his youngest child is found mutilated and murdered upside down in the privy, it opens the door wide on this very private little family group, and it's revealed as far from respectable. The author then introduces her, and she hopes will be our hero, Mr. Witcher, to the proceedings. The detective section of the Metropolitan Police was started in 1842, and Mr. Witcher was one of the original eight detectives. By 1860, the department was well established, and Witcher had earned a fine reputation for almost miraculous powers of detection. In this story, we watched the bumbling investigation of the local police. We watched the attempts at deduction by almost every amateur sleuth in the country. And we follow Mr. Witcher's progress through the case and see him come to a conclusion and then bring that case and the conclusion before the court. The author holds up the different elements of the case before us. She offers us tantalising glimpses of the evidence and the various theories as we progress step by step toward a resolution. She styles it in the way of a detective novel, but also adds many fascinating glimpses of police work in the 1860s. Kate Summerscales has done a fair amount of research into this period. She throws in a few lively accounts of celebrated detection and arrests. There's quite an exciting feel to the early police work. It's immensely dangerous, but also a grand experiment which attracts mad adventurers and strange eccentrics. If you imagine Vimes and Carrot from The Watch in Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels, then you'll find two people 
who would be very much at home in the London police force of the 1860s. This book is a fine piece of entertainment. It's fun and playful and gives some fascinating insights into the development of detective mania and our fascination for horrific crimes. There are intriguing glimpses of mid-19th century life in England. There's also some feeling for the class tensions of the time. But this book is in no way a comprehensive coverage of that period. You'll have to delve into the bibliography at the back of the book for that. Finally, I would warn you that there is no definite conclusion to this case. This is unsatisfying, although much more faithful to life's realities than most detective fiction. The author does offer some interesting conclusions and has dug out some of Mr. Witcher's own private notes that tell more of his suspicions than were produced at the time. The book is a terrific read. I had a million other things I needed to be doing, but these all got pushed aside as I sat and read every page, even the notes and bibliography. I would recommend this book, The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, by Kate Summerscales. And now it's podcast review time. I want to review for you now a podcast called the Thomas Jefferson Hour. You'll find this at www.jeffersonhour.org. It's a weekly radio show on public radio that is then put out as a podcast. Now, this is a podcast I never thought I'd find myself listening to. I mean, to my shame, I know only a little of the history of the United States of America, other than where it crosses over into European history. European history is my passion, my joy, my focus. And because of this, I thought that I'd have trouble forming a connection with his character. I thought I'd found myself floundering as regards cultural reference points. And while this does happen occasionally especially where he talks about current topics in the United States, I do find much in this podcast which is of interest to me. As a brief introduction to the podcast, I'll read you some of the information from the Thomas Jefferson Hour podcast page. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is a weekly radio program dedicated to the search for truth in the tradition of Thomas Jefferson, our third president. Thomas Jefferson was a man of the Enlightenment, a student of human nature and gentlemanly behaviour, and he applied this to his personal life as well as to both the national and worldwide challenges he faced during the forming of our nation. Nationally acclaimed humanities scholar and award-winning first-person interpreter of Thomas Jefferson, Clay Jenkinson, portrays Jefferson on the programme, and he answers listener questions while in the persona of Jefferson. His answers are grounded in the writings and actions of the great man. So there you have the setup. Clay Jenkinson adopts the persona of Thomas Jefferson and discusses topics of the time as well as current topics. The first half of the show consists of Clay Jenkinson in the persona of Thomas Jefferson. For the second half, he drops the mask and becomes Clay Jenkinson talking about Thomas Jefferson. He talks on many subjects, including banking, oil, slavery, the Lewis and Clark expedition, his home in Monticello, Food, United States, President Obama, Pirates and Monticello. He talks about Monticello a lot. This might all sound a bit general, but it's fascinating the insight these discussions give into the mind of a man of the Enlightenment. Now, 
most of you will be all too familiar with the Age of Enlightenment, but I'll, I'll give a quick intro for those who aren't quite sure what it is. The Enlightenment was a period in the late 18th century, around the time of the War of Independence in what is now the United States of America, when the intellectuals of the age were talking, publishing, painting along the theme of reason as the primary authority. This kicks against inherited authority in many cases which is often held as the divine right of monarchs or unquestioning devotion to the dictates of the church. All these things were questioned, debated and in some instances overturned. The movement focused upon France and then spread through the rest of Europe and the British Isles in particular and then the ideas spring up with considerable vehemence in North America. I'm afraid I'm going to leave that description as vague as that at the moment. The Enlightenment is many things to many people. To some it focuses on democracy, to others enlightened despotism is the way forward. But you'll find much concerning personal freedoms, liberty and reason in the writings of the Enlightenment. If you wish to know more, you would do well to seek out writings by such figures as Rousseau, Diderot, Voltaire and Paine. Whatever the differences though, most people seem to agree that the Enlightenment forms the basis of much of our modern day thought. We here in the West are all children of the Enlightenment. But back to Thomas Jefferson. It's intriguing listening to Clay Jenkinson talk and hear so many of these ideas at the stage they were in the late 18th and early 19th century. I can hear echoes of the Salon in Paris, the coffee houses in London, and the fierce debates in the British Houses of Parliament on liberty and economics. Clay Jenkinson really brings this man of the Enlightenment to life, and I feel myself drawn in to experience this fine performance. I suspect that maybe the more Eastern of our listeners may find some of the references difficult, but for the Western audience it should have something of interest to most people. This podcast is heartily recommended. That's the Thomas Jefferson Hour at www.jeffersonhour.org The War of the Spanish Succession It is now the winter of 1705-1706 and it's time yet again for Marlborough to make his usual round of diplomatic negotiations with the European kings and princes in preparation for the next campaigning season. There's a host of troubles to smooth over and the distribution of money to remind the Allies what a splendid idea it is to be allied to the maritime powers. The first port of call was the Elector Palatine, from whom he must ask permission to court-martial the Count d'Aubach for his poor performance in the defend of Treves in the spring of 1705, and he must also ask for 300 extra troops to be sent into Italy. This latter is agreed to as long as the money is forthcoming to increase the number of troops paid for by the maritime powers from 7,000 to 10,000, and then he'll send those. This is agreed, and Marlborough can move on. He now goes to visit a person who has caused him some considerable irritation this year. This is the Margrave of Baden, who hasn't engaged anywhere near as much as he was asked to do, and so 
effectively scuppered Marlborough's plans to advance into France along the Moselle. The meeting seemed to go quite well, but Marlborough still left hoping he could persuade the Emperor to remove the Margrave from the Rhine command. His next stop was Vienna, and that was to meet the new Emperor Joseph, who was desperately in need of cash to pay Prince Eugene's forces in Italy. Marlborough invested his own money, together with a loan from a Venice banker, to make sure the troops were paid. But he did make sure that the money would be paid to them directly, rather than going through the court, where it's guaranteed that large amounts of the money will be diverted elsewhere, quite probably to the ongoing campaign against the rebels in Hungary. While he was there, he also pressed the emperor on the promise made by his predecessor to make Marlborough a prince of the empire. The Austrian emperor, Emperor Joseph, was happy to do this, and he bestowed upon Marlborough the Principality of Mindelheim in Bavaria. This is not as generous as it seems, though, as he probably foresaw what would happen to these territories, and sure enough, when peace came, this land was handed back to the Elector of Bavaria. But Marlborough retained the title, and even to the present day, the Dukes of Marlborough hold the title of Prince of the Holy Roman Empire. By late November it was time to move on, and the Duke of Marlborough set off for Berlin to engage in some very delicate negotiations with the King of Prussia. Prussia had lost a considerable number of men in the Italian campaigns of 1705, and were not now so warmly disposed towards this war. There was also a fierce war raging only a few miles away from their borders, between Sweden on the one side and Poland, Denmark and Russia on the other. Sweden under Charles XII were winning victory after victory and it must have been quite tempting for the Prussian king to throw in his lot with Sweden and reap the rewards of victory. Prussia and Sweden together would have been an unstoppable force in the Baltic and an ambitious king could enlarge his borders many fold. However, although Prussia had an abundance of fine fighting men, they did not have the means to support and pay them. Marlborough met the Prussian monarch and managed to convince him that his future lay with the maritime powers and he extended the treaty to give assurances that Prussia would have the full backing of England if there were any incursions onto their territories from foreign powers, including Sweden or any of the Baltic states. This will have been quite reassuring to a state surrounded by so many strong powers. In December, Prussia came to an agreement with Marlborough to supply troops for the Rhine and Italy for the forthcoming campaign of 1706. It's intriguing though that this little footnote in these winter negotiations had quite significant ramifications for the future of Europe. No one could have realised at this time just how significant would be the rise to power of Prussia. It was still a fairly poor nation, only recently become a kingdom. It didn't take sides with Sweden and eventually benefited from the acquisition of some Swedish territory when the Great Northern War ended. It continued to expand its armies to such an extent that some time later Voltaire said of Prussia, where some states have an army, the Prussian army has a state. Prussia invaded Silesia in 1740 and was opposed by Austria, Russia, France and Sweden. Their only allies were Hanover and Great Britain, and yet they managed to hold and retain Silesia, 
making them a power to be reckoned with in Europe. Now, they had their setbacks during the Napoleonic era, but of course, in the 19th century, we see their power grow dramatically with the unification of Germany under Prussia and Bismarck in 1871. So here we are seeing Prussia right at the start of their expansion, at the stage where they could have made deals with so many different countries, so many of them that would have led the history of Prussia in a completely different direction. If they'd thrown in their lot with Sweden, would Russia have ever been able to expand? Would Sweden turn round and have crushed Prussia once they gained what they wanted? Without the pact made at this time, would there have been the history of negotiations that encouraged England to back them during the Seven Years' War? And would Prussia have ended up just a satellite of Austria? So many different possibilities. And if we look at almost any of the negotiations that Marlborough carried out this winter, we can see just how vital and important it all was certainly to the cause of the maritime powers. But anyway, we must leave Prussia here. Marlborough has completed his negotiations and Prussia are back on side. But his wanderings aren't over yet. There's yet another stop he has to make in Hanover. And in Hanover, there are yet more very delicate negotiations waiting for him. The Hanoverian court, ever with their ears to the ground as regards happening in England, were deeply disturbed by recent events in the English Parliament. There had been manoeuvrings for royal favour, which, although ostensibly concerned with the Hanoverian succession, actually were directed towards discrediting the other political party. The Tories had tried to discredit the Whig party and had been tripped up by clever rhetoric and a counter-proposal from the Whigs, which left them looking very foolish and very much out of favour with the Queen. Marlborough managed to explain the intricacies of the English party politics to the court at Hanover, assuring them of the succession to the English throne. And the atmosphere was once again cordial, and the required troops from Hanover were assigned for the forthcoming campaign. Marlborough's wife, Sarah Churchill, had sent the Electra Sophia a portrait of Queen Anne, and in response, the Electra Sophia sent this message. I think that after all the kindness you have had the goodness to show me, you will be pleased with my acquainting you with the joy we felt in having had my Lord Duke here in person, and in finding that his manners are as obliging and polished as his actions are glorious and admirable. I have testified to him the esteem I feel for the present you have made me of the Queen's portrait, which I prize much more than it is possible to prize that of the whole universe, which I send you in tapestry. Marlborough wrote of the meeting in Hanover, I had a very long conversation with this elector, who did not want many arguments to convince him that his and the Queen's interest were the same. He has commanded me to assure Her Majesty that he will never have any thoughts but what may be agreeable to hers. During Marlborough's stay at Hanover, it was only three days, he not only had to smooth the ruffled feathers of the Hanoverian court, but had a major dispute presented to him regarding the quartering of the Allied troops along the Rhine. He wrote a multitude of letters to the many and various electors, princes and bishops involved, and eventually managed to settle the difficulties. Just a quick mention here, in case you were baffled by these negotiations at Hanover. This was mostly about the succession to the English throne. I think I've mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again. The succession had to be a Protestant succession, 
and we look at the line from the Stuart Kings and Queen Anne, who is on the throne at the moment, there in 1705, is one of the Stuarts, but it is a family of Catholics. And we have to look all over Europe for a relative, somebody with a definite claim to the English throne, who is Protestant. And it's not till we get to Sophia in Hanover that we find the next person in line to the English throne. Now, as it turns out, Sophia doesn't actually become Queen of England. She dies before Anne, and it's her son, George, that comes to the throne. And he will be George I of England. And so then we get George I, 2nd, 3rd, and so on, until we get to Elizabeth II of today, and they're all descended from this line of Hanoverian royalty. When you hear people making jokes about English royalty being a bunch of Germans, this is where it all comes from. So finally, after settling the fears of the Hanoverian court, he returns back to The Hague in the Netherlands in December to complete the paperwork and arrange for the money orders for the many and various payments and loans he'd arranged and catches the boat back to England to arrive home on December the 31st, 1705. He'd made an epic journey of 2,000 miles around Europe in the grip of a particularly harsh winter. He'd completed a large number of seemingly impossible tasks, overcome so many difficulties to weld the alliance back together and make it ready for another year's campaigning against the Spanish and the French. It was a stunning achievement, showing his amazing talents as a diplomat were just as important as his uncanny abilities on the battlefield. Meanwhile, you might be wondering what's been happening in Spain all this time. This war is known as the War of the Spanish Succession, and yet we focus very little upon the events in Spain. Well, the major events so far in the Spanish arena are the entry of Portugal into the war on the side of Austria and the maritime powers, the capture of Gibraltar in 1704, the Austrian claimant to the Spanish throne had been proclaimed as King Charles III of Spain, the French and Spanish armies had been trying to recapture Gibraltar, but were continually beaten back. In 1705, we see the arrival of a sparkling personality, but a complete idiot upon the scene in Spain. This is the Earl of Peterborough. And there's a quote here about Peterborough. It says, He is of such temperament that he cannot brook an equal. He is a thoroughly restless and quarrelsome character, incapable of dealing with anybody. And on top of this, he has had no war experience on land or sea. So it's a mystery to me as to why he was appointed to this position, as it must have been self-evident to many that it was going to cause a lot of difficulties in a situation where he must act with tact and diplomacy. His first suggestion for the 1705 campaign in Spain was to march directly upon Madrid. The Austrian claimant and the other commanders did, however, prevail upon him instead to attack Barcelona, and after much debate, he did eventually assent to this, but made the stipulation that 18 days were to be the extent of the siege. The siege was a mass of confusion and peculiar blunders, but somehow Barcelona was taken, and Peterborough stood as the conquering hero. The Allies extended their influence, and soon Austria and the sea powers were in control of all of eastern Spain. The tensions, however, among the leaders were now becoming almost unbearable. But just at the moment, the situation in Spain looked very rosy indeed. 
Even the Austrian emperor, who had previously begrudged sending troops and his own brother into Spain, was now full of enthusiasm for the project. He was, however, adamant that the quarrelsome Earl of Peterborough be removed from command. He was not removed. I suppose this is the case of he who pays the piper calls the tune, and England and the Netherlands were definitely the ones paying the piper. At the start of the 1706 campaign, the French moved to recapture Barcelona. King Charles was trapped in Barcelona and defended it valiantly against the repeated assaults. Despite this, Peterborough made no immediate attempt to go to the rescue of this beleaguered city, and even sent orders directing the fleet elsewhere. Fortunately, Admiral Leake ignored these orders and landed 5,000 troops at Barcelona before engaging the enemy fleet and chasing them away. Peterborough did eventually join the relieving force and proclaimed himself saviour of the city when the French withdrew. So yet again, Peterborough's coming up smelling of roses. And we've now edged into 1706, there in Spain at least, and we'll progress a little bit further with Spain next time. And we'll see what Marlborough is planning in northern Italy and also see how the French fare in their offensive in the Low Countries. So from History Zine, I'll say goodbye for now. <laughs>